0: Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, in honor of the holiday season, Our show features Maine holiday seafood celebrations, past and present. I'm excited to talk with three women from coastal Maine who write about food and history, about Maine and nature, about travel, and so much more. We've had these three folks on the show in the past, but never together, and it's great to have you all back to help me explore the world of Maine seafood, something that many Mainers serve during their holiday celebrations. So let's introduce you. We are joined today by Sandy Oliver, food historian, food writer, and columnist who lives on Islesboro in Penobscot Bay. Hi, Sandy.
1: Hi, how are you today?
0: Great, thanks so much for joining us. And we also have Marnie Reed Kroll, who's a conservationist, natural history writer, poet, and scallop cookbook author from Sunset on Deer Isle. Hi, Marnie. Hello, Natalie. Great to have you. And Thank then you. last, and then last but not least, we have Nancy Harmon Jenkins, who's a writer, historian, cook, traveler, and storyteller from Camden. Hi, Nancy.
2: Hello there, Natalie.
0: (laughs) It's great to have all three of you. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, So let's jump right in and have each of you share a bit about yourselves and your connections to Maine and to food, Um, especially seafood, although I know that you. Don't limit yourselves to seafood and we can meander to other main foods um, and also to writing about food. Um, you each come at it from very different angles and backgrounds. And maybe let's start with Nancy. And, and if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, that'd be great.
2: Well, it's pretty easy to introduce myself. I uh, I come from a very, very long line of Mainers on both sides of my family, the Harmons on my father's side and the Thorndike's on my mother's side. And uh, and we go back a long ways. And the first, actually the first Thorndike who came here was a fisherman who came up from around the North shore of Boston bought an island off uh, Waterman's Beach in South Thomaston from the Penobscot Indians and used it to dry his nets. So I have a lot of fishing in my blood, I guess you would say. But at Christmas time, I always think of my mother who grew up in Thomaston and they were not very rich people. They they didn't have, they lived on a farm. My grandfather had retired from the sea and uh, they were sort of making do. And she used to say to me, she would say, poor child. While we were so poor, when when I was growing up, we never had anything to eat all winter long, but saltfish and lobster. And so I always thought of saltfish and lobster as poverty food. And I have to confess that I didn't actually like lobster until I was well into my 20s, because it gets stuck in your teeth, you know, when you eat it. And that was very embarrassing for a teenager. But my mother almost always served lobster at Christmas. She certainly served lobster for Christmas Eve. And very often, if we hadn't had it for Christmas Eve, we'd have it for our Christmas lunch instead of the usual turkey or capon or whatever other people ate. So lobster was a very important part of my growing up, even though I didn't like it for a long time. And I still, uh, to this day, I always have a lobster stew for Christmas Eve and sometimes lobster for Christmas Day, too.
0: Wow, that's great. What a a great way to get us started. Um, Maybe let's have Sandy. Would you like to go next?
1: Sure, happy to. Well, I'm not from Maine, unlike Nancy, Um, but I've been living here for 35 years. And I know something about it because of the opportunity I had to do some research on uh, the early food of New England, uh, including a large chunk on seafood and fishing and and fishing history. Uh, So, you know, I'm terribly interested in Maine's uh, fish and seafood habits. Uh, And on Christmas Eve at this house, uh, it used to be that I would would have uh, oyster stew for our Christmas Eve supper. And we moved to Maine. I lived across the street from a lobster person, lobsterman. And so we made the shift to a lobster stew on on Christmas Eve. Now, unfortunately, one one of my household members is allergic to seafood. So we've had to punt a little bit. I still make a I'll, I'll still make lobster stew, but I'm more likely to, or just as likely to make um, Swedish meatballs, which is part of our family's heritage. My grandmother was born in Sweden, uh, which we, we, which we serve unaccountably um, with tomato soup. So that's <laughs> so. Uh, on Christmas Day, however, we we do an all meat uh, extravaganza, no no seafood on the table at all.
0: Great, thank you, Sandy. And Marnie, how about you?
3: I came here as a new bride 60 years ago, married to an ecologist. And my graduate work was also in ecology. So I was very uh, active in our land trust. And that's relevant because when I went to Marsden Brewer, who raises farm scallops, he said to me, "Uh, Marnie, the trouble is people don't know what to do with these. And I thought to myself, well, since I know that they're good for the Bay and they're good for our environment, and thanks to my husband's ecological research, I've traveled all around the world. I think I'll figure out what people should do with them. So, Martin gave me lots of scallops and I cooked them lots of ways, most of them based on tradition. And my husband taste tested them and if they were good, I took their picture and put them in a the cookbook. So that's my, and when I came here as a bride, uh, my a friend here, was known as one of the island's best cooks, and she cooked for the cafeteria. And this Mrs. Small taught me how to cook. So the way I cook is Deer Isle tradition style because of that.
0: That's great. Thank you, Marnie. Um, so thanks, all three of you. Um, you each have really fun stories. Um, and and before I jump into the first theme that I wanted to explore with you, which was some of your perspectives on sort of the historical, um, influences on our seafood and on our main main food whether they're way back in the past or in the more recent past in the case of of Marnie you know joining up with a scallop farmer Um, we weren't scallop farming you know Two or 300 years ago. So so that's going to be my first topic. But I, I wanted to first take a minute. I know uh, I, I'm pretty sure each of you have um, published books and, ha- and some of you have columns related to seafood. And I just wanted to make sure we let our listeners know um, what the books are that you would like to tell people about and where they can access your work, whether it's columns or that kind of thing.
2: So, I have two recent books, not terribly recent, but the most recent books I have. One is called Virgin Territory, and it's about olive oil and how all. Made, why it's good for you, cooking with olive oil, choosing olive oil. And there's a lot of seafood in there because seafood and olive oil are kind of natural companions. And the other book I wrote with my daughter, who has her own restaurant in Rockport called uh, Nine of June. And this book is called The Four Seasons of Pasta. And as you can imagine, pasta requires a lot of seafood and there are loads of seafood recipes in there. It goes through the seasons: spring, summer, winter, and fall, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And um, and in I think in every season, there have to be at least two or three recipes that feature seafood. But in addition to that, I've just started this year doing a substack column and you can find it at Nancy nancyj. com, And I call it from the kitchen porch. And it's from wherever. My kitchen is it's from the porch it's talking about food and and food gossip and recipes and what foods are in season and things like that so there's a lot of seafood in that too and in fact i'm probably next week going to put up this recipe my favorite seafood stew which is a lobster stew that comes from sam hayward who i think is maine's greatest chef and maine's greatest cook probably and uh he calls it scotian lobster stew i call it maine lobster stew but it's a really wonderful and it is it's more like a chowder because it's got potatoes in it too it's a wonderful recipe so that's my story
0: great thank you how about you sandy tell us a little bit
1: sure um the the my first book which has a lot about seafood and food uh food history of early New England is called saltwater foodways New Englanders and their food at sea and ashore in the 19th century Uh, it's out of print but if you're interested in this kind of thing you might want to find it at a library or get it on interlibrary loan if you don't have it uh, if, if your local library doesn't have it, um, and just, you know, mesh yourself in some of the fascinating stories about how people viewed fish and seafood in the past. Um, it wasn't always as favored as it is now, and so it's, you know, there's a deep and rich story associated with that, uh, but most recently, uh, I wrote Maine Home Cooking, uh, 175 uh, recipes from down east Maine. And these were all based on my weekly column in the Bangor Daily News. Uh, and of course, there's seafood in that book and occasionally as well in the in the Bangor Daily News column, which is called Taste Buds. Uh, it appears variously, you know, sometime usually after Wednesday, every week, sometimes not until Saturday. So um, that's those are my primary venues at this point, though I also write Journal of an Island Kitchen for the Working Waterfront, published by Island Institute.
0: Great, thank you, Sandy. And Marnie.
1: My writing career began
3: writing about life on our farm on the edge of the Adirondacks, because my husband was teaching at St. Lawrence University, and we would come to Maine in the summertime. And my second book was about great blue herons, the Times books published um, the idea of migration that our birds go from here down to the as far as Trinidad, and we need to be concerned, therefore, about both ends of the migration for animal, various birds. But and I wrote columns in newspapers, both where I lived in the winter and here in the summer. And but more interesting, of course, is the book that I did with Marsden called. Farm Scallops, the whole story, and that's available on Marsden's website, which is www.penbayfarmscallops.com. So that's an interesting website to go look at, which shows you pictures of how Marsden does it, and he made a trip to Japan, so you get pictures of how people did it in Japan, because most of them, they're way ahead of me in doing this wonderful Uh, way of adding to our seafood that are available in an ecologically sound way. Can I interject
2: something there, too? I think that Marsden scallops can be sold with the row
3: attached. Is that right, Marnie? Yes. Actually, what's interesting is basically around the world, people wherever there's seawater grew or caught scallops. Uh, Spain is particularly good on this, but about a little over 100 years ago around the world, everybody seemed to simultaneously overfish their scallops. So there was sort of a break in the chain. But the people who caught on to how to do it at a better scale were Japan and off Scotland and Ireland. And so it's seeing a resurgence of doing it right this time. And that means that uh, I had to look at what were traditional seafood combinations and try them out with the whole scallop. And what you were seeing, they call it roe, whether it's the female product, which is red, or a pinkish version, which is the male ones. And when they get to be that right age to, to form those sexual products, which they then disperse into the sea, which they call spat. And then the our scallop farmers can just go out with little nets and and the scallops will settle into the mesh bags, and then they take those back and put them in the safety of a lantern net or something like that, uh, so that the crabs and other things can't get can't get at them. They live a very good life feeding off of what's naturally in the bay and package their excrement in a way that makes good food for what lives on the bottom of the bay. So that makes it a win-win uh situation for everybody, prickly for us because those farm scallops taste a little different. They have a different product a little different they, they have a, a an umami effect, which the straight muscles don't the muscle, which is the adductor muscle, that's what you're used to eating as scallops in the winter. Doesn't have that to the extent that the whole the whole farmed uh muscles scallops do. So it's an exciting thing coming to cooks in particularly in Maine, with Marston and a few other people who are now taking it up, uh, are most interested first in feeding Maine and keeping up our sea coastal economy.
0: And um, that's clearly kind of a, a newer influence in our seafood world. Um, let's take a step back and and Sandy, can I um, can I ask you to just kind of share a little bit some thoughts around? Um, uh, some of the earlier days in New England, what people were eating related to seafood? What what place did seafood have in early colonial living?
1: Well, let me just start that by saying that one of the reasons we prize seafood these days is because it's low fat, it's rich in good minerals and vitamins, and I mean, all that good stuff. It's great food, lots of protein, not much uh, fat, um, but that very reason, the fact that this is a low calorie food as a general thing until you dump a lot of sauce on it, um, is that uh, that it was too low in calories for an awful lot of people who were living in cold houses, working hard, building stone walls, taking down trees, doing all their laundry by hand, um, you know, chasing their numerous children around the yard, you know, it was very hard, it was hard work to live in the 1600s, the 1700s. And uh, it doesn't, it doesn't get a little easier until the 1800s. But um, uh, so people preferred a, a food that had a little more caloric punch. And so if you really want to improve on, on a fish, what you would do um, is cook up a bunch of salt pork, Um, chop up all the little crunchies and you know pour the fat and the crunchies back on top of the fish again or you would put it in a heavy cream sauce Uh, so you know things have gotten all reversed nowadays now the people who had to rely on seafood an awful lot were often the poor as Nancy related in her family story you know if you were really up against it you would go get fish to eat, or you dig a mess of clams. And I can't tell you how many people told me, you know, I would go and talk about this book and talk about fish and seafood and clams and lobsters and all. And I can't tell you how many people used to come up to me after my talk and they'd say, you know, when I was growing up, um, you know, my mother, my mother would cook up a mess of clams for us. We'd have a chowder or something. She would say, she would say to me that, you don't have to tell anybody about this. It was sort of a sign of poverty that you had to rely on foraged food and you would have much rather have gone to school with a bologna sandwich than have at least one person told me about how he used to trade his, his lobster sandwiches for bologna sandwiches at school. Um, so and, so food, you know, poverty food was fish. And of course, Maine uh, suffered with a little less a robust economy than the rest of New England. So we we clung to a lot of our officiating habits here. And of course, people liked it. Uh, and the, the tip off on that turned out to be when I compared provisioning lists for vessels in uh, southern New England with those of Maine vessels. The Maine vessels often made sure that there was salt mackerel on board, that there would be a keg or two of tongues and cheeks. Um, and other other fish showed up in the um, in the provisioning lists that was much less common. In fact, I would have to say I, I can't really remember very much of it at all, seeing that in um, vessels from Boston, you know, the, the southern coast. So that's sort of a, a long story. Now, this is a very, it's a lot more complicated in all of this because we, we have Catholics involved in this and and People who put garlic on their fish, and New Englanders in the early days didn't think very well of garlic, and they didn't think very well of Catholics. Um, and fish and Catholics uh, ended up kind of associated in their minds. Also, because fishermen, as a general thing, were a pretty rough lot. So a lot of the uh, you know when when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was establishing fishing villages in Maine, um, they had to turn to people who more or less untamed certainly weren't strict, good Puritans, you know, they, they uh, went, they went to live in Maine because it was a little bit out there. Um, and uh, at least one, uh, so the New England preacher traveled up to Maine and said, well, you know, we came to Maine, you know, to establish a church of God. And the guy stood up and he said, no, we came to fish. So um, the combination of all these factors, the fact that it was low calorie, that it was often associated with Poverty that was associated with foreigners, and that the fishermen themselves were rough characters, tended to kind of put fish and seafood down at the bottom of the menu, you know.
0: That was Sandy Oliver, a food historian, food writer, and columnist from Islesboro in Penobscot Bay. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Our show today is all about Maine holiday seafood celebrations, past and present, and I'm joined by three guests who are sharing stories and recipes and perspectives about Maine seafood just in time to whet your appetite for the holidays. Speaking before Sandy Oliver was Marnie Reed Crowell, conservationist, natural history writer, poet, and scallop cookbook author from Sunset on Deer Isle. And our third guest today is Nancy Harmon Jenkins, writer, historian, cook, traveler, and storyteller from Camden. Before we turn back to our guests, I wanted to let you know that today's show was pre recorded, so we're not taking any calls. Here's Nancy Harmon Jenkins
2: i think if we go back to the original inhabitants of maine we find that seafood was tremendously important and it was it was harvested it was smoked it was dried it was preserved because throughout the winter when the woods were full of snow and it was too difficult to get out and try and 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 get a deer or a muskrat or a squirrel you had that salt, dried, smoked fish to keep you going, and that's uh, you know that's something that I, I'm always amazed at how uh, indifferent the European settlers were to what was going on here already. There, I know that there are excavations on I think it's North Haven, it might be Final Haven, that uh, where they have dug up the bones of tremendously large swordfish. That were the leftovers of some kind of of indigenous feast that took place there, and uh, and then these settlers come along and they say, "Oh, poo, fish. We don't want to eat fish." But the way the other thing that I find fascinating is the way that uh, prohibition against fish, um, the way it got carried on in terms of mussels. When I was growing up in Maine, nobody ate mussels. In fact, I thought for a long time that there was something poisonous about them because they were so prohibited. You never saw them being sold anywhere. They weren't on restaurant menus. Um I remember my mother poo-pooing the, she's pointed out the Baptist minister's wife was harvesting mussels on the rocks near the beach in Camden. And um she said, That's how poor the Baptists are, said my aspirational mother um because they have to harvest these mussels and eat them and even in the 1970s friends who moved here from other parts of of the states or other parts of the world were astonished at the proliferation of mussel beds and the fact that nobody was harvesting them
1: they were they had a reputation for being i think the word a lot of the cookbook writers wrote was sweet sweetish and they didn't they didn't like that but there was you know, well, of course, mussels are, can be adversely affected by red tide. And so it may be that some people did get sick when they ate mussels. And so that just reinforced everybody's idea that it was a bad thing. But, you know, speaking about the Abenaki and the uh, and the others who are fishing in the main yale, uh, the middens, if you've never been to a, a Damarscada and visited that enormous oyster midden it's an astonishing thing to see and it's not even all there anymore because they harvested they were digging it out and using it for uh, lime for fertilizer and all that Um, but I know here on Islesboro there's lots and lots of these little shellfish middens where um, the Native Americans came down the Penobscot River and landed on Islesboro spent the summer here Doing exactly as you were describing, fishing and and um and eating and all, and then going back up the river for the for winter, and then the great alewife feasting every spring too. the 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 Native Americans flocking to where wherever they could catch numerous quantities of of alewife. It's um, really impressive.
0: Marty, you were about to say something a minute ago. Yes, yeah,
1: so I was going to say that the insights
3: of Nancy and Sandy are very interesting, but a, a, an amusing little sideline is that in 1960s, we were taught how to get those mussels, but nobody would admit that they ate them. <laughs> this, this notion of, of what you fess up to and what you actually do are not quite the same. But it's also worth mentioning how plastic our food habits are. And the reason I bring that up is it has to do with Japan, because shortly before World War II, a Japanese professor managed to unravel some of the secrets of umami. Now, that's a word which recently recently has gotten very popular. Well, it turns out the uh, the the muscle that we're used to eating, the adductor muscle, which holds muscle shells together, is not all that different from the tail muscle in the lobster. It's, it's a just solid batch of muscle. Whereas, and that's M U S C L E, I'm saying, and whereas when you eat the whole creature, you're more attuned to M U S S E L S, mussels muscles and clams and oysters, and you have a different set of biochemicals in those uh, tissues. And the Spaniards discovered that if you put them all together as paella, wow, do they ever add effect on each other? And that's the same effect we're finding with with now that we can once again eat the whole of the scallop shell, that it enhances the taste. All these other things come and go in fashion, but putting them all together, we are learning, it gives what we call an umami enhancement. And that's just the wonderful thing that we now have available to us.
0: Great. Um, for the three of you as, um, you know, people who research and write about food um, and, and are paying really close attention to how you work with food, how you cook food, how, what do you recommend to our listeners? You know, everyday Mainers who are going about their life and might want to include some seafood, whether it's in their celebratory meals this week or whether it's in their everyday cooking. How do they make sense of how do you recommend people make sense of of the sort of the challenging news around fisheries and aquaculture, and how that translates into what you recommend people do in their kitchen?
1: You know, back in the the turn of the of the nineteenth to twentieth centuries, um, fishermen, after they had invented trawlers and could catch anything that got in the way, um, a lot of fishermen complained that the problem with fish in America wasn't um, overproduction; it was rather under consumption. So (laughs) nowadays, I think the problem is over consumption. Um, There's a lot of species we still don't eat. Um, And I think being brave enough to try something unusual, like a whole scallop uh, is is an awfully good idea because otherwise you're throwing a lot of scallop away um, and you can get awfully good meal out of all of that stuff. You know, we've been talking about mussels
2: and clams, less so, but mussels, scallops, um, oysters, uh the the aquaculture that's going on with these, aquaculture with clams has been a little bit difficult and problematic, but the aquaculture of these other species, if species is the right word, these other kinds of seafood... um make me think that we should be paying a lot more attention to that. And I want to go back very briefly to an article in the current issue of Working Waterfront, which is where Sandy's column appears for uh, Island Institute. And in that most recent issue, there's an article by Paul Greenberg, and I think many people in Maine know Greenberg's work. He's been here a lot of times. He's a big, a big, passionate defender of fish and seafood, but he's kind of making an argument that Maybe it's time to give up eating wild fish because we are so fishing out the wild seafood population with our reckless. And when I say our, I'm not talking about the United States necessarily. And I'm certainly not talking about Maine, but universally around the world, we have decimated the resource. And that's bad because it, not only means that we won't have these fish to eat in the future, but it also means that they're part of the food chain. And once you break a link in that chain, it's broken. It doesn't come back again and it links everything else together. So um, I think paella would be a great dish to do, but let's do it with main raised mussels, main raised scallops, main raised and lobster because lobster after all, I mean, the way we harvest lobsters is basically a form of we might call it primitive aquaculture. Uh, yeah the lobster fish will tell you they're feeding the lobsters. and the lobster our lobster population is very robust because they get fed and they get taken care of. And uh, so I consider lobster an appropriate uh, an appropriate fish to include. Uh, even uh, even though we think of it as wild, it really is kind of encouraged. in the way blueberries are, wild blueberries are not really wild, they're encouraged by farmers. Wild lobsters aren't really wild, they're encouraged by fishermen. So let's eat them. And to hell with the Monterey Bay Aquarium, because I don't think they know what they're talking about.
3: <laughs> well, Nancy, you're mentioning the, the lobster fisherman is very interesting because it brings up the question of what's the appropriate scale. And the reason I can say this with a smile on my face is when, when Marston went to Japan, he saw that the scallopers there is a mom and pop operation. Mom and dad and maybe one kid are out on their boat, which looks just like our lobster boats. And they're tending their nets that they're raising the scallops in. And the scale up is done on land where the processing is at processing and marketing. And if we in Maine get serious about aquaculture, we need to look at leasing limits to make sure that we don't let some big money outfit from somewhere else buy buy up all the leases. But, and you mentioned monoculture, Sandy, and the thing is, as soon as you keep the scale small, you're safe. And we know that because since Roman times they realized that growing seaweed and growing a mixture of these different shellfish etc was good for the environment. They, they feed on the natural plant plankton that's out there floating around. And it's a wonderful thing. So we in Maine are, are poised to do something that's really ecologically very sensible. As long as we keep it at the right scale.
0: What are some of the what are some of the things that you're cooking in the next couple of weeks during the holiday season? What's what's on your menu?
2: Well, I'm actually making beef bourguignon for the people who are coming to supper tomorrow night. Um, but that's because I made fish earlier this week and for another group of people. And I decided that I would be uh, I mean, I made, this is interesting, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of, uh, Sandy was talking about putting sauces on fish to boost the flavor in it, because sometimes it can be very bland. There are a lot of wonderful um, sauces that you can either cook the fish in, or you can add to the fish afterwards, and what I was doing was a, a Japanese miso sauce, it was a mixture of, of white miso and soy sauce, and uh, a little of the Japanese rice wine, and some chopped up ginger and garlic, and mixing all of those things together and marinating the fish briefly in that. and then baking it in the oven at a hot temperature. it was really delicious. and it created a kind of um, sauce in itself that was great, spooned over the fish at the end. And the fish, you know, the fish cooks in fifteen minutes in a hot oven, if that. there's that. There's also a lot of um of sauces to add at the end, like, Aioli, which is basically just garlic mayonnaise, but it too is very good with um, with seafood. Witness the paella, which is very often served with a dollop of aioli to go with it, or other um, egg-based sauces. Or um, the the Mediterranean is full of seafood sauces. And I'm thinking of things like, uh, not ratatouille, what is it called? Rouille, which is a French sauce that is based on red peppers that have been grilled and then pureed with a lot of other things added to them. And it, you don't smother the fish in it, you add it to the side of the fish. And it is, uh, it's delicious. And it makes that that paddock shine in a way that it didn't before when it was on its own. Oh, just a simple mixture of really good extra virgin olive oil and lemon juice and a little chopped, finely chopped garlic just spooned over the top of the fish the minute it comes out of the oven. It's delicious.
3: Nancy's recipe for the, the miso combination of the Japanese ingredients, uh, Marsden and his son Bobby made something like that for a this annual event here called Men Who Cook. And the voters say what they like. Well, they won. They won the Men Who Cook trophy by their their stir fry made with whole mussels and those flavorings. And so most any of the Asian combinations that your family is used to, they will also accept with uh, any of these seafoods. Uh, and Um, moderation again is is again you don't want to over spice these things because then you can't taste the seafood but as long as you're careful your family will love all the the combinations of seafood that you come up with
0: how about you sandy what do you what are you considering cooking in the next couple weeks over the holiday time
1: yeah well in the in the past couple of weeks Um, I made a a, uh, uh, you can go you can pick up smoked salmon ends, which are very handy and you can just kind of beat them into a cream cheese loosen it up a little bit or you know just uh, and then make it into little sandwiches and I took some of those to a a funeral reception we had out here Um, because I knew that somebody else would take care of the bread and butter and the egg salad and the other, you know, the other common things. So I thought, well, let's, let's do a little smoked salmon. So that's awfully good, but you know, we'll probably have smoked salmon again on Christmas Eve, um, as one of, of probably what'll be many hors d'oeuvres or, or on Christmas day for before dinner, we'll have a, um, and probably smoked salmon with a little caper and a little bit of, you know, all that good stuff all piled up. It'll be yummy. Um, you know, and then we'll have to see what happens after that. I, I get hankerings from time to time for just a plain old chowder with just a plain old white chowder fish and some nice fresh potatoes out of my garden and onions and all that. And just, you know, layer it all up. And that makes me a happy camper.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org. Our show today is all about Maine holiday seafood celebrations, past and present. Just now, the voice you were hearing was Sandy Oliver from Islesboro. Sandy Oliver is a food historian, food writer, and food columnist for the Bangor Daily News and the Working Waterfront Newspaper. We've also been hearing from Marnie Reed Kroll from Deer Isle, who recently co-wrote a cookbook focused on how to cook whole scallops. Now, before I go any farther, I wanted to share a quick message about safe consumption of scallops. Here in Maine, we're accustomed to eating just the scallop's adductor muscle, the white meaty part of the animal. There are in fact strict regulations that wild harvested scallops must be shucked at sea with only the adductor muscle brought back to the dock and sold to consumers. This is in order to avoid any risk of biotoxin exposure that may be present in the shucked parts of the animal. If you want to experiment with cooking and eating whole scallops, it's absolutely critical to buy them only from a certified dealer whose operations are rigorously monitored. Okay, our third guest today is Nancy Harmon-Jenkins, a writer, historian, cook, traveler, and storyteller from Camden. And before we launch back in, just a quick reminder that our show was pre-recorded today, so we're not taking any calls. I had just asked my guests for cooking recommendations for people who are just getting started in the kitchen with seafood. Here is Nancy Harmon-Jenkins.
2: Well, I recommend, first of all, that they don't overcook the seafood. That's that's the problem that just about everybody has is overcooking it. And that holds for everything from swordfish to haddock, to clams, to oysters, whatever. Actually oysters are better raw than they are any other way. Scallops are awfully good raw too, but, um, Oh, what was I going to say? You know, one of the techniques that I sometimes recommend to people who are, because a lot of people are hesitant about cooking seafood. They think, oh, it's going to smell up the kitchen. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to do with it. If you were to get um, a piece of haddock or hollow, or some um, white fish that's got a fairly dense profile, swordfish is another good one. And you cut out in the raw stage an individual portion and you put it on a sheet of aluminum foil and you add to it a dollop of olive oil or a little pad of butter and some chopped up onions maybe some chopped up garlic a few slices of tomato maybe some black olives if you want to go mediterranean on it and then you seal that up keeping a loose package but but tightly sealed around the edges and you put that in the oven and leave it there for, gosh, I don't know how long, but long enough to cook it. Um, It's so easy and it's so little mess. And when you're done, if you're not environmentally over the edge, you can just take it out of that little package you've made and put it on a plate and uh throw the package away and your cleanup is done and your kitchen doesn't sp- Dish, and you've got uh, you've got a delicious dish for whoever is joining you. And you can do those in individual packages. like you know if you've got six people for dinner, you do six of these little packages in the oven at the same time. And I think it's a great technique. I can't remember where I learned it, but um, I've, I've introduced a lot of people to it because it's so easy.
3: The way I, this is Marty, the way I would tell people to get used to whole farm scallops is in the summertime can't get the adductor muscles. Uh, you can be rest assured that the testing to make sure that there aren't red tide and other poisonous issues are not there because they're very carefully tested. I would suggest that you either put them on a grill or on your broiler pan or just plain steam them in a pot just until they pop open. Now, that's a very little bit. And we call those Penobscot Bay popcorn because they're so delicious if they're served with a little dish of melted butter and you let each person take them and whip off the top shell, which is now popped open, and cut out the scallop, the whole scallop, and cut off the little bit of black digestive gland, which contains the parts that are not particularly good for you or good for that, and, and eat those. And I guarantee they'll be like popcorn. You want lots of them. And what I'm having for my Christmas feast is another thing that indicates another one of the principles that these two wonderful cooks we have here r- r- suggest is don't overdo the spicing. And if you peel, cook and peel parsnips, and take either the whole scallop or the adductor muscle, whichever it is you can get your hands on at the time, and puree them with a little bit of half and half i mean to tell you that is the most elegant bisque and only the cook knows it's a three ingredient bisque that tastes so mysterious that you don't know where you ever got such a wonderful thing woo 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 merry christmas
0: (laughs) go ahead nancy
2: Oh, I was just daydreaming a little bit about other things. I mean, lobster, yeah. I mean, the other thing is, if you have a good fishmonger, I mean, it costs a fortune to buy cooked lobster. But if you have a good fishmonger who doesn't uh, overcook the lobsters, and I always specify no more than 12 minutes uh, to cook a, a pound and a half, pound and a quarter lobster, um, and will pick the meat out for you. Then you've got a very easy dish and you can turn it into anything from Sam Hayward's Scotian stew to a lobster bisque to lobster salad. Um, I mean, there's so many things you can do with it. You could chop it up and mix it with some potatoes and make lobster cakes. Uh, It's just one of those um, universally useful uh, elements, but it is expensive.
0: I wanted to go back um we were talking earlier about some of the influences in in and the history of what New Englanders have eaten over the over the decades and centuries um and I'm curious what you have seen in your time and your research um what what caused the changes in how we view seafood
2: what caused the changes today it's, I think it's very easy to look to all of the nutritional information that's coming in about the importance of seafood in a healthy diet. People want to eat seafood, but a lot of people just don't know how to do it. So they open a can of tuna fish and yeah, that's seafood or can of sardines, even better. Um, And so I think restaurants in particular have become much more in tune with the demand for seafood. Now, we've always had seafood restaurants in in Maine, but a lot of times they've just been the place you go to for fried clams or a lobster salad or something like that, but not where you go for any kind of imaginative seafood. I'll tell you, my daughter serves mackerel at her restaurant. I bet there are not a half dozen restaurants on the coast of Maine that serve mackerel. Because it's still considered a trash fish, and nobody understands what a glorious piece of seafood it is. Um, so you do have that part, you do still have these places that you know everything is fried, uh, the fish is fried, the clams are fried, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think it's you know, partly it's the new people who move here. Partly it's the tourists who come in the summertime. Not all of them are looking for a lobster roll. Some of them are actually looking for really good seafood. And, um, and so you've got these influences coming from all directions. One of the things that, and Sandy could comment on this, I was asked a couple of years ago to talk about what Mainers were eating for fish 100 years ago, or maybe it was 150 years ago. And I did some research and I was interested in the fact that they found these giant swordfish bones out on the islands. And so I went over to Bowdoin where they have this remarkable collection of historic cookbooks from uh, the 19th, I think it may even be a couple of manuscripts from the 18th century there. You don't find swordfish mentioned at all. And you go through decade after decade after decade and there's no swordfish. And I don't know why. I don't know whether the swordfish, you know, because fish, as you know, Natalie, are, are very um, <clears throat> migratory, whether they migrated away for some reason or whether there was a feeling that swordfish was servants food or prisoners food or something. I just don't know. But then all of a sudden, and I think really I would guess it's kind of post World War II. Swordfish suddenly starts to pick up, and that's not just in Maine; that's nationally. It's one of those things that I can't, I can't explain it. I just, I just observed it, but I can't explain it. Sandy, do you have a take on that?
1: Well, I'm wondering if it, if swordfish is kind of a challenge to, to uh, catch. True. As a tuna, nobody ever brought
2: tuna here back then either. Nobody ever ate tuna. Tuna was really considered trash fish.
1: Yeah, it didn't really catch on. Uh, the, some of the earliest references I saw tuna eating were, say, in Boston, um, where people were observing that the Italians who settled in North Boston were were using tuna fish. Yeah, and it doesn't catch on until it becomes canned. And, and then it's, then it's marketed as chicken of the sea, um so you know uh, that that might have something to to do with it i mean mainly people didn't eat fish because it wasn't meat. we ate fish every friday
2: we weren't catholics but we ate fish on friday i suppose because friday was the day the fish shop in town had the freshest fish
1: yeah, that's how the Protestants got caught eating fish on Friday. Because if you wanted good fresh fish, you had to get it then. If you wanted to wait to Saturday to prove that you weren't a Catholic, um, you know that was maybe too late because it would have been caught on Thursday. So tricky business.
0: That's so interesting. And and Sandy, what what have you noticed in terms of what some of the transitions were that caused the the changes in our perception of of seafood and our interest in seafood? Yeah.
1: I, I think one of the things is that there's one of the movements that I that I observed in the in the eighteen in the eighteen hundreds is a, a move towards increased refinement and gentility on the table. And fish, you you know, I don't think fish was presented as often filleted as it has been in later years. So that a fish was more likely to appear on a table whole. Um, In fact, when cod were still really large, one could prepare a cod's head, put put that on the table. And there would be quite a lot of fish meat attached to that head. Um, But Increasingly through the 1800s, people didn't want heads on the table. Certainly, didn't want eyes on the table. And so, whole you know, whole fish gets kind of relegated in more recent times to you know, great festivity like uh, for example, a wedding where you have poached. You might have a poached salmon and it's decked out beautifully with overlapping cucumber slices to look like scales, and a and a nasturtium planted firmly over the the fish's eye. So nobody knows what there is underneath it. So um, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of that. Um, I, the the reason I got tipped off to that was because I found a recipe in the later 1800s. It said, be sure to take your bones out of the, out of the fish that you put into chowder. And then I thought, oh, this, this would indicate a change of habit that, that, that um, the fish was put into the chowder pot more or less in chunks, whole chunks, and you were either you would either chomp the bones up or you would spit them out. You know, the difficulty of eating fish and having to be careful not get, you know, not end up getting choked on a bone may have something to do with it. I, I think it's a really good question and I, it probably is going to need a lot more research to try to tease out some of the reasons. I'm going to make a prediction. I think the
3: big new change is the internet. And I say that because we are so well aware now in ways we didn't used to be of what everybody else is doing. And one of the things I'm making for Christmas will be based on artichoke and tahini and scallop. And it looks really pretty, of course, if your scallop has that red row, But tahini, what if you don't have tahini in your local market? You go to the internet and you say, I want it. And what if you don't have the seafood? Well, then you probably have most of it. Interestingly, most of it freezes very well. So knowing that there was a traditional Lebanese combination, that's what made me realize I ought to try this with the whole farm scallops. But And most of Maine does not grow artichokes. Some people do, but most of them don't. And tahini is not something that most Mainers use every day, but it's worth exploring and the young people are so used to being connected not only are their accents changing their tastes are changing what they're interested in and what they want to try is different so it's a new world out there now isn't that nice
0: well um i think i'm i have time to ask you one more question um and uh i think what i want to ask you is um a a little bit to to go off of what Marnie was saying in terms of changing times and the ingredients um what do you think you or cooks in Maine are going to be cooking in 10-15 years related to seafood is it going to be species that we're not cooking now is it going to be just international ways of cooking our old favorites what's gonna what, what do you see for cooking Maine seafood in in the future
2: well, I'll jump right in there and say I think that um, Asia, I've, 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 I've noticed that Asian foods in general and Asian methods and by Asian, I don't mean Western Asia, I mean, Southeast Asia, and you know, Vietnam, southern China, uh, and even Japan have, are having a tremendous impact on everything from, if you look at the New York Times recipe page, which I do every day just to see what's going on, uh, invariably there's some Asian ingredient in there, often miso or or that Japanese rice wine that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I think there will be more and more of that, but I also think that we're seeing a new generation of cooks coming along who are very, very aware of the environmental impact of everything they put on their tables. And we now get something like a little over 50% of our seafood is farmed Uh, by the next 15 years. I think we're going to have to see more and more and more of that. And that means that we have to pay attention to how it's being farmed, because just as with, uh, you know, raising sheep or raising green beans or raising tomatoes. How they're grown, what goes into the, 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 um, maturity of them is critical to how they taste. And it's also critical to our environment. So we'll be paying attention to uh, salmon farms that are doing the right thing by their salmon. We'll be paying attention to more of this, um, there's a term for it that I can't quite remember where you're simultaneously growing three or four different products in the same water, like salmon and kelp and mussels all grown together. We'll be paying more attention to the use of the the landscape uh, along our coastline. And that, you know, it's worth pointing out that we're really not in any danger at all of losing our coastlines to aquaculture. We're in danger of losing it to development. And that's where we need to fix our sites for the next 15 years. Um, We now have, I think, I think the figure is 1,700 acres of all kinds of aquaculture in Maine. That's everything from salmon down east to um, oysters in uh, off Muir Point and that sort of thing. Um, 1,700 acres sounds like a lot, it's nothing. But development and the threat of losing our coastline to big scale development is a real problem. And that's where I'd like to see our cooks <laughs> paying attention to that as they continue to support aquaculture and well-farmed fish.
0: Great. Thank you, Nancy. Sandy or Marnie, what are you, what are you seeing in the future?
1: Um, I'm worried about our lobsters taking a walk and ending up in Nova Scotia. You know, as the water gets warmer, uh, the lobsters just think, oh, it's, it's, it's good, too toasty for me. And uh, we've had a really sustainable lobster fishery for lots and lots of years. I mean, like centuries. and And it's as the water this past year wasn't a very good year for the lobster men, but as as the water gets warmer, we really have to anticipate that the, the fish are gonna that the lobsters are gonna make up our minds for us by just w- walking away. Um, and then of course this, the acidification, water acidification, has an adverse effect on shellfish, which we really really love. I mean we love shellfish more even than other fish, you know, plain fin fish. So I worry about those two things. I would have to agree with Nancy about overdevelopment. And I'm also worried about um, development of the sea bottom. Um, any rare minerals that we need for powering our uh cell phones and other electronic devices could be mined off the sea bottom. And we that's where the that's where the fish live. You know, that's where the all the sh- the shellfish live. It's a worry.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Sandy. Marnie, how about you? Well, once again,
3: I'm going to say that the internet gives us a possibility. It's up to us to take the responsibility to get ourselves understanding what the issues are, and then to contact our legislators and tell them we want some things fixed, and get the research done so that we understand more about the links, the ecological links of what's going on on our sea. And it's up to us to keep a positive attitude that we've been blessed in Maine with this beautiful uh, aquatic scenario out there. And if we try, we can take care of it. We can get enough people working together to gather enough knowledge to do it together in the right way. You make all sorts of pressure by what you do with your knife and fork. So your seafood cooks cook it and make everybody know how valuable our seafoods are. Seafoods, broad spectrum, we don't even know yet what all we can eat.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's a, that's a good note to end on. Um, we've, we're out of time, so we have to wrap it up. But I wanted to thank all three of you so much. Our guests today were Sandy Oliver, food historian, food writer, and columnist from Islesboro in Penobscot Bay. Marnie Reed Crowell, conservationist, natural history writer, poet, and scallop cookbook author from Sunset on Deer Isle. And Nancy Harmon Jenkins, writer, historian, cook, traveler, and storyteller from Camden. Thank you all so much. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music of Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.